0: that music means your next hour is going to be about connection welcome to this show is all about you a show dedicated to discussing and experiencing the things we all have in common when you and me become we and explore what it means for all of us. Here's your host, historian, writer, social commentator, and a whole lot of other things, J.D.K. Winnikin.
1: Hey there, everyone. How you living out there? Thank you for joining us for this episode of This Show is All About You. So happy to have you along for the next hour. As we talk about things that are going on in the world, but we get under a lot of the stories and the narratives that we often hear about them, In search of those things that, as elusive as they might feel and be perhaps, still nevertheless connect us uh, beyond time and space and context while appreciating all of those three. So happy to uh, have you here and to be moving forward into yet another week uh, that has been certainly busy uh, and a lot going on in the world seemingly as always, which we'll get to in just a minute. Uh, But first of all, if you're catching the show for the first time, welcome in. Really happy to have you here. And Remember, you can get this show as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And as of today, there will be 120 episodes of this show for you to peruse over the last couple of years and really excited about that. So you can check that out. And certainly you can get this uh, live on our Kixie 880 radio in Seattle on Mondays. You can also catch it on KKNW 1150 AM at 6 a.m. on Wednesdays and overnight Friday into Saturday. So be sure to share this with your friends and family who might be interested in the things that I talk about on the show, which can come from just about any direction in any way. It's one of the things I really enjoy about it. If you'd like to know more about me, check me out at my website, wordsbyjdk.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and I guess it's X now? Twitter. Uh, I haven't decided on Threads yet, but you can decide you can decide for yourself if you want to reach out to me there. Look up my last name, W Y N E K E N. You should find me rather easily. Would love to connect with you. Special thanks to this show's longtime sponsor, Airway Science for Kids, a nonprofit based down in the Portland, Oregon area which provides life and career pathway opportunities for underserved youth through the exploration of aerospace careers. And there are hundreds of them, literally. So In fact, almost any career you can think of can fit into the aerospace world. It's that big of an industry, and it is pretty much a guaranteed growth industry. And so Airway Science for Kids really believes in what aerospace can provide for the future, and it believes in the children of this generation to uh, contribute to that future. So it works to bring them together in a way that not only introduces students to these jobs, but also gets them better connected with themselves, their families, and with their communities. If you'd like to know more about the amazing work that they do, Check out Airway Science for Kids at their website, airsci, A-I-R-S-C-I, dot org, and you'll hear more about them during the show breaks. Okay, quite a lot going on in the world, in case you have been paying attention. And chances are you have been, but just in case, let's look back on a few stories from over the past week in the segment that I call, What in the World is Going On?
0: with Russia hitting two minor Ukrainian ports in the past two weeks, and its biggest port of Odessa the week before that, all forcing global grain prices higher. As drone attacks have ramped up too, targeting both Moscow and Kyiv, damaging buildings in both capitals in the past several days. In Odessa, the city's most important Orthodox cathedral is starting an estimated five years of repairs after a Russian missile exploded through its roof in July.
1: The war continues unabated, of course, and it seems every single day we hear more about missile attacks from Russia into Ukraine, drone attacks from Ukraine into Russia, particularly into the occupied areas in Crimea and elsewhere, uh, as well as into Moscow. It's interesting how that just sort of just started happening. Um, Drones hitting Moscow, which is hundreds of miles away from the, the front, which means there are a whole lot of security issues going on in Russia to prevent this from happening That the Russians certainly aren't talking openly about the counteroffensive that the Ukrainians have been have been underway with for the last few months continues to grind forward. And yet they're finding more success at hitting Russian infrastructure in the occupied areas of Ukraine, particularly the bridges and other causeways that lead into the Crimean Peninsula. That is a major target area for Ukraine because it was one of the first areas taken by Russia back in 2014 when they started this. It's worth remembering that this started in 2014. Not in 2022. And that, should Ukraine manage to push Russia out of Crimea, that would certainly be a major development in this war and a major uh, sign that Ukraine was on the way to at least achieving what it's hoping for, either an outright victory or perhaps in a negotiated settlement. But it sure seems like that is a pretty elusive end point at this point for reasons that the second clip for today gets into in more detail.
0: While this war grinds on, today up to 40 countries are taking part in talks in Saudi Arabia. Ukraine expected to push President Zelensky's ten-point peace plan, which of course calls for the return of all Ukrainian land. Notably though, the Chinese, who are key allies of Vladimir Putin, sending a high-profile special representative. The Russians, though, not attending these talks. But peace talks, whatever may come, depends on what happens on the battlefield. And for now, there's no sign that either side is clearly winning and that neither side is really ready for peace.
1: That's about as good sum- summation as I've heard in quite some time. And the fact that there are peace talks going on always does raise hopes. And certainly it's better to be having peace talks than not having peace talks. And from the outside looking in, it looks pretty good, right? Ukraine has come to the table. There are 40 different nations from Africa and elsewhere. I talked a little bit about this last week. And China, right, major superpower involved in all of this. And all of it being done in Saudi Arabia, another re, regional power worth paying attention to in all this. And yet, appearances is part of the point. And also the fact that the Russians aren't there is indicative of probably one of the limitations of these of these peace talks. For there to be peace talks that are going to include both Ukraine and Russia is going to take a lot more stipulations than what this group has already put together. And Russia is probably going to be have to be facing even more dire circumstances than what they already are facing. The role of China in this also benefits them from every single direction. Number one, they get the international bump in prestige for being willing openly to host these peace talks. It's also in their best long-term interest that this war ends effectively, but also keep in mind, they're also supplying Russia with material that they need to fight this war, including weapons and uh, other resources. And it benefits them that way. And certainly it benefits China for the United States and NATO to continue to pour resources into helping Ukraine fight against Russia because China has its own aims in the Pacific and elsewhere. And the more goods, the more money, the more military equipment can be sent by the United States and NATO to Russia means fewer, in theory, fewer of those things to face down China as well. China in all of this kind of wins, period, no matter what they do. So they get all the benefits of looking good in these peace talks and don't really have any sort of negative side effects of this if the war continues to drag on. So before we give too much credit in too many places, let's remember that all these parties involved in these peace talks are all getting good things out of it for themselves. And that just tends to be part of how international politics goes. Okay, and then finally, one more clip today that's going to launch us into today's subject. Um, Most people are just kind of tired of hearing about all of this, but I'm going to point out today why we shouldn't be tired about talking about this at all. And the campaign sent out a lengthy statement using much the same language that they've used uh, in the face of his other legal challenges over the years, calling this an un-American witch hunt, suggesting that it is purely political, even making hyperbolic uh, comparisons to 1930s Nazi Germany and Soviet authoritarianism to describe the kinds of conduct here from the Justice Department going after uh, the former president. That, of course, the initial response from former President Trump's legal team to the indictment handed down uh, last week or the week before, it's hard to keep track anymore, I think it was the week before, uh, of the former president around what happened leading up to the January 6th uh, riots that led to the assault on the U.S. Capitol. All of that, of course, the most significant of the many indictments, which is weird to say, the many indictments uh, uh, that the former president is facing at this point. And while there is a certain degree of larger Trump fatigue across the country, both on people who have not supported him since day one and more and more among people who did at least one point support him, the fact that this is happening, that a former president has been indicted in an effort to defraud the American people by depriving them of a peaceful transfer of power between this person's presidency and the next one, the very fact that this is happening is staggering when we take a look at this historically and unfortunately that has gotten lost in that fatigue, in that clutter, in the incessant talk, in the incessant incessant, uh, hyperbolic throwing around of language, particularly from his camp, but the sort of the bloviated responses from a number of different directions about it. What we're going to talk about today is going to dig into this, but it's worth remembering. If you take a step back, no president has ever been indicted before, never mind been indicted three times so far with a fourth likely coming in Georgia, nor has a former president been indicted for something like trying to defraud the American people. It's not quite a trial for treason and sedition, but wow, it is close. And the fact of the matter is that when this trial, if this trial ends up going forward, which it really looks like it's going to, how can this not be the biggest trial in American history. How can it not be? And I think we should be keeping an eye on that and sitting with that discomfort in the midst of what clearly is an exhausting news cycle and has been for quite some time involving the former president. So I just wanted to kind of point that out from a historical perspective. This is about as big of a deal as it gets when it comes to uh, the history of American jurisprudence. Uh, Now, Let's transition into today's subject. And longtime listeners of this show know that when you kind of come in, you're not quite sure what you're going to get. I don't necessarily let people know from week to week what I'm going to be talking about. But I always am looking for things that are either going to help us connect around things, get rid of some mythology around things, perhaps use a story from history to illustrate some larger truths about ourselves, kind of underscoring that we're all humans in the end, no matter when we've lived or where we've lived. And then other times it's just to tell a story from history or talk about history in a way that perhaps we don't often see, whether we're watching something on the news or getting, even getting a documentary on television that's a little more elongated. Because part of my background, one element of things that I've done is I have a PhD in history and it's in 20th century history and it's history of Germany, Russia in this period of the rise of the Nazi party, World War II and the Holocaust and the early Cold War. Today is going to be one of those days where I'm going to wear that hat, the historian's hat. Because in that last clip that Eric played, that last clip you heard that the former president's legal team hearkened out in their blasting of this indictment as a political witch hunt, said it was reminiscent of some things that happened in Nazi Germany and in the Soviet Union. Now, on its surface, you heard the commentator call it hyperbolic. Well, yes, it is. I'm going to talk a little bit about why, of course, but here's the thing. We tend to dismiss those things as hyperbolic in part because as we look at them and go, yeah, well, that's not the case. This isn't Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union. Well, if the last six to seven years, maybe longer, have shown us anything, it's that narratives of any kind, no matter how freaking crazy they might be, repeated enough times in enough places by enough people can be embraced to varying degrees by people in such a way that it starts gaining national notoriety and starts shaping political and social views. For example, the QAnon idea. Who 10 years ago would have dreamed that something like the QAnon conspiracy theory could have as many people supporting it or being open to it when you consider the precepts of it, which are ludicrous on the surface of it? No one would have been able to anticipate that 10 years ago. So it's certainly, when we're talking about comparing what is going on with this indictment or anything going on in American politics or American society with Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union, it's easy to dismiss those. At the same time, scholars of those areas and those eras, like myself and many others around the world... Ask ourselves quite a bit, when these things are just thrown around in political discourse or these are just kind of tossed around as a, as a way to justify a social position, do those who understand what those terms mean and what those eras were about and those regimes were about, do they have a responsibility to be corrective? Until just a handful of years ago, there was actually a debate among scholars about this. Do you want to engage with Holocaust deniers, for example, Because you might give them credence that they don't deserve otherwise if you do that. Do you really want to engage with somebody who's comparing the Department of Justice with the Nazi Gestapo and they really, really believe that? Do you want to really engage with them for the same reason, that you give them credence that they didn't otherwise deserve? There were a lot of people for a long time who said, no, not going to engage in that because that just gives them that attention. That has changed. As a lot of those ideas have found more currency, sadly, in various parts of the American electorate and American society in general, more and more people who are experts on these things have decided that they really do need to speak out. And when you take a look at what's been happening in Florida and elsewhere with the state now overseeing and deciding upon what history is that can be included in textbooks, whether it's about the Holocaust or about slavery, interestingly enough... Those are the types of things that when they come up, people kind of go, didn't the Nazis do that? Didn't the communists do that? For all those reasons, it seemed like this might be a time for me to step back, put on my historian hat for an episode and talk a little bit about, and I can't believe I actually need to say this, (laughs) about how what's going on with this indictment is neither Nazi nor Soviet. And in fact, really in the end, there's a whole lot of projecting going on from all sides of the aisle, but particularly from those defending former President Trump right now, a lot of projecting and a lot of attitudes and actions on their part that actually are closer to the mark of the claims that they're making that are going on with the indictment. So that's what I really want to talk about today from a number of different directions. So when we come back from our first break on this show is all about you, we'll dive right into that and we uh, will be interesting to see what you think. Stick around.
0: I'm Julia Cannell, Executive Director of Airway Science for Kids. We sponsor this show is all about you because it exemplifies our core values, connectivity, communication, emotional intelligence, positivity, respect, and the power of possibility. Help us introduce historically excluded youth to all of these through the wonder and promise of aviation and aerospace careers. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace to all. Visit airsci.org to learn more and to contribute
1: your talents. Welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you. Kind of focusing in on the uh, indictment of former President Trump and and more so the claims from his camp that this uh, that this indictment is a political witch hunt reminiscent of Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union or, you know, other authoritarian regimes, as the statement said, Uh, which is really interesting, considering on just the surface, considering that former President Trump has expressed open admiration for authoritarian regimes around the world, whose systems actually do use the justice systems for political ends, like Putin in Russia, like Xi and the Chinese Communist Party, and communist Chinese Communist Party in China. Say that three times fast, and others around the world. Really interesting that that's the case, and certainly in the case of the former president, I don't think it's a huge step. Uh, to say, (laughs) somewhat tongue-in-cheek, that perhaps what he's really upset about is that he's not getting to do the same thing as easily as he would like. And certainly when he's talked about what he would do if re-elected president in 2024, it sure sounds like all the things he's saying, that this was a weaponization of the Department of Justice, uh, so on and so on and so on, is kind of what he's planning to do. He's talked about gutting the civil service and ending the civil service exam. He's talked openly about putting loyalists to him in key cabinet positions, this type of thing. So eh, let me think if Doth project too much, perhaps. But nevertheless, what I'm here to talk about is mainly this comparison with Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. Because while it, to many of you, you might roll your eyes and go, well, that's absurd on the face of it. There are enough people out there responding to this. Trump's legal team would not put this out there in its initial statement to these indictments if they didn't think it was going to resonate with a certain group of people. And those are the group of people that continue to support the former president. And these tend to be people who were involved in things like the January 6th insurrection and others, white nationalist groups, actual Nazis, you know these types of things. And so it's worth talking about in all of this. Now, narratives have power, as I talked about before the break. Even absurd ones, when repeated over and over and over again in public forums, can gain credence among a lot of people and start to have an influence, and they can be terribly difficult to dislodge from people's perceptions of themselves and the world around them. And so I'm not going to say those who believe these things are stupid people. What I'm going to say is people who are believing these things have been lied to for a very, very long time and are finding it difficult in the midst of the fears they have, the concerns they have, the grievances they have, to be open to hearing the truth of what those regimes were once about and, by extension, what may actually be happening that's a lot more complex today than the simple explanations for complex issues that they're really seeking. Oftentimes, when these types of narratives are embraced and put forward, It is because trying to find a simple answer, which usually involves blaming some other group, tend to come out. And they tend to come out when there are things like economic difficulties going on within the country, demographic changes of various kinds, international instability around the world, public health issues internally that hit people really close to home, and then, of course, political division. Maybe you noticed, I listed those five factors. All those things are going on in this country and in this world right now. The economic difficulties of inflation and the money spent on, at, during COVID to keep businesses and individuals afloat continues to be a major issue. Demographically, the United States has been changing for a very long time, to the point that by middle of this century, the majority of people in the United States will not be white. And that's a demographic time bomb, if you want to call it that, that went off a long time ago. And you can argue that some of the reactions that we've seen over the last handful of years by those really pushing white nationalist and Christian nationalist agendas has a lot to do with the anxiety of what that's going to mean for them. That's something for another day. The international situation seems obvious. I lead with it every single week. Public health, we just had an unprecedented or nearly unprecedented for this century uh, pandemic that wreaked chaos across all fronts and then of course political division all of that fitting together when those factors are going on oftentimes extremes will find more credence you know more extremist views and certainly then when we throw in things like this is a nazi thing this is a soviet thing it just amps up things even more because frankly as soon as you label something, this is like the Nazis or this is like Stalin, the conversation is probably over, right? Unless it's actually going to be about Nazism or Stalinism. There is, a, there is a, an, an online theory called uh, Godwin's Law, which says that within 15 minutes of a, of a comments thread starting on a Internet story, within 15 minutes of that thread starting, somebody will invoke the name of Hitler, right? It's again a little bit of a tongue in cheek idea, but nevertheless, it shows and illustrates how things can quickly devolve into that kind of name calling. As a scholar of this era and of these regimes, I avoid those things and call them out when I see them because using individuals like Hitler and Stalin and the systems that they created and the systems that they perpetuated as a way to name call, first of all, isn't historically accurate, obviously, and second, actually devalues the lessons that we should be taking and that we can get from those regimes and the types of moral clarity that we should be pulling from them. Primarily, first and foremost, we shouldn't be supporting any ideologies that claim a master race that involves killing other people to make it happen, nor should we be embracing systems that say we should be eliminating all class distinctions between people using murder as the means to do it. Those two regimes, Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, didn't just embrace violence as an option to achieve their aims. It was the primary vehicle through which they were meant to be gained, first and foremost. And every system, every part of those systems, I should say, whether we're talking about the military, whether we're talking about the politics, whether we're talking about the judicial system, were all undergirded by either active violence or the threats of violence. First and foremost, they embraced them. The Nazis and the Soviets, they had a lot that made them different from one another, and they hated each other for (laughs) for a reason. But nevertheless, they were both projecting forward into the future an apocalyptic vision of a perfect, quote-unquote, future as they defined it. From the Nazis' point of view, based on racial purity where all other races would be effectively eliminated, and from the Soviet point of view, an idealized apocalyptic future where all class distinctions had been ended via violence and redistribution of everyone's wealth into equal portions. But in the end, both the Nazis and the Soviets strongly believed that those who resisted them, their enemies, were going to fight. And so, therefore, They needed to be eliminated quietly, clandestinely, openly, however they needed to. And you needed to be strategic on how you did it. And there were certainly differences in how they structured these approaches. But nevertheless, that's what they were looking for. Neither system had an independent judiciary system at all. And while the judiciary systems did exist, they were always beholden to the will, the whims, and the decisions made by, in the case of Nazi Germany, by the Nazi party itself, which met by Hitler himself, first and foremost. Or the Congress of People Soviets in the Soviet Union, led by Stalin, or brought before him by Lenin. They are the ones who, in the end, their word was law. And any statements that had to come out to give the impression that this was the will of the people could be amended <laughs> accordingly to meet those statements. So just on the surface, and there were no, no real written constitution in Nazi Germany, and the one that was written in the Soviet Union was only really in name only. They didn't list independent judiciaries, things like the Department of Justice, that could investigate other branches independently. There was no such thing at all. And while I realize that the claim by those supporting the former president is that this is a weaponization of the Department of Justice, it is decidedly not, in the end, a Nazi or a Soviet anything. We want to have a conversation about the politics, about the timing, about how all this works? Sure. But shouldn't that be in the context of reality? (laughs) The American system, the realities of the American system, the difficulties, the contradictions, the paradoxes in the American system? Those are worth having. The same people who are arguing, for example, that this the political timing of this is very, very clear, that they waited forever to do this because of the political timing with the 24 election cycle coming up. Most likely, had they rushed through this and done this the year after the, the insurrection or that type of thing, would say, well, this is clearly a witch hunt. They're not spending any time putting this all together. They're rushing, rushing, rushing. They wanna prevent this from happening. They'd be making the same argument one way or the other, primarily because the person they support is the target of the indictment. It might just be that simple. And the American judiciary, (laughs) there are ways for it to be held accountable. It doesn't have free independent operational immunity from things. They have to follow the law as well. They have to go in front of judges and prove their cases. They have to go in front of judges and make claims and make appeals for various things before trial begins, when a trial is going on, and even after a verdict. None of these things existed in the Nazi or the Soviet context. And so really what this is, is an attempt to tar and feather one's opponents and also avoid introspection. On oneself and one's own sets of beliefs about what might be going on. Now, I'm talking about this from the per, from the perspective of people who are supporting the former president. Anybody can do this from any direction. It's happened from people that lean more left in various cases. It happens from people who lean right, on the right and then others who don't fit any sort of category. So this is a human thing that we can do. It's just right now, it's particularly acute because of how if anything's trying to be weaponized right now, it's history. And as a historian and a scholar, that is incumbent upon me to point out why that doesn't work and why history itself isn't so easily pigeonholed into these little political soundbites and these little political weapons and barbs we want to use against those we disagree with. So just a few things here. First and foremost, another reason why this had nothing to do, this has nothing to do with Nazism. All elements of the Nazi system cannot be separated from how the Nazis viewed racial theories and ultranationalism and that apocalyptic view of revolution and violence. All the things that they did, all the actions they took, all the systems they set up, had everything to do with that combination of factors. And it's the only way to effectively understand, quote unquote, why the Nazis made the choices that they did from 1933 to 1945. Because if you stand outside of that context, outside of those ideological, that ideological radicalism, a lot of the steps they took didn't make any sense whatsoever and come across as completely self-destructive. So in the context of what they actually believed and what they were actually trying to do, while they still are crazy, right, in the sense of what, what they were trying to do and murderous, there is a certain type of twisted logic to what they were trying to accomplish based on their ideas that we rightfully find monstrous. For example, when Hitler first came to power in 1933, it was a it was a system, it's a parliamentary system, right? Direct democratic. So if your party achieved say 30% of the vote, you got 30% of the seats in parliament. That was the system in democratic Germany before the Nazis came to power. When Hitler and the Nazis gained the majority, In the 1932 elections and he was appointed chancellor in 1933 that was sort of the system whoever had whoever's party had most of the votes usually was asked to be chancellor the head of the head of the government there were a lot of people who were reluctant to have hitler and the nazis at the front end of this and so hitler strategically said i tell you what give me the chancellorship i want two other positions cabinet positions and the rest of this cabinet People who decide on war, infrastructure, education, that type of thing, can be from other political parties. Hitler wanted two. He wanted the minister without portfolio, meaning a minister that he could appoint to special projects to handle various different things that he wanted. And then the minister of the interior. Now, when it came to big cabinet positions, neither one of those was seen as one of the big ones, like foreign ministry, for example, right, or economic minister. Those were seen as the big ones. And Hitler said, you can go ahead and have those. And it was all part of Hitler's plan to show, or at least to give the impression, that he was going to rule from the middle when he was actively trying to subvert democracy. The thing with the minister without portfolio was he could assign that person anywhere he wanted for special projects, and he didn't necessarily have to account for them with the rest of his cabinet. Minister of the Interior was in charge of all police in Nazi Germany. And a name a lot of you, if you know anything about this history, have heard before, Hermann Goering was appointed the minister of the interior by Hitler. And the first thing that the Nazis did upon achieving the interior ministry was fire every single police chief in Germany and replace them with Nazis. So you had Nazis in every single state in Germany by early 1933 who were running the police. And, of course, what they did was they purged all of their high ranks of anybody who wasn't a Nazi, and promoted Nazis, particularly those from the brown shirts, the so-called stormtroopers, into their ranks and effectively politicized the police. That doesn't sound at all familiar, (laughs) right? Nothing like that in the American system, thankfully, right? At the same time, Hitler also opened the first concentration camps within days of becoming chancellor. The notorious Dachau concentration camp outside of Munich opened within days of Hitler seizing power and became a place where effectively SS commandants of the later killing centers in Poland were trained. They were for political prisoners to start with. The next month was the so-called Reichstag fire, where supposedly, according to Hitler and the police, which, a reminder, they've all been Nazified by this point, where the police said a young communist set fire to the Reichstag building in an attempt to overthrow the government, when really all indications are from the paperwork that has survived and the interviews of people after the war who were around this, that this was a complete setup by the Nazi police state to effectively provide a precursor to eliminating the Communist Party from Germany. That's exactly what they did. The Communist Party was banned from that point, and suddenly those concentration camps, like Dachau and others, began to fill up with communists. The next month, using the Reichstag fire as a pretext, Hitler stood before the parliament of Germany and claimed under their constitution that he needed to be given emergency powers because there was clearly an attempt to subvert the will of the German people, the Reichstag fire an attempt to subvert the will of the German people, and he needed emergency powers in perpetuity to prevent that from happening. To make sure that there were enough votes in the parliament to give Hitler that, not only could he count on the Nazis, but he had to eliminate certain other groups. He intimidated the Social Democrats, who were a little more left-leaning. He intimidated them from showing up for this event, and in some cases prevented them from entering the building. He cut a deal with the Catholic Center Party for them to abstain from the vote. And so, using these tools, he got the emergency declaration and immediately, through a combination of outright bans, coercion, deals, and threats, eliminated every other political party in Germany. That was it. And suddenly, within just a very short period of time, Hitler and the Nazis run the country, both politically and, importantly, police-wise, in terms of law and order. He allowed the judiciary system to continue, but then he created special courts, Hitler did, There were going to be for so-called political, uniquely political cases, which could be defined however he wanted them defined. And the creation of the Gestapo, the domestic the internal, the internal investigative police, They were given carte blanche to investigate, prosecute, and punish anyone they deemed, for whatever reason, to be suspect by the state, which meant it could be rather arbitrary. And certainly, the Gestapo and other arms were used to target those people that the Nazis found to be undesirable, particularly Jews and others. Okay. Time for another break. We come back on this show is all about you. We'll talk a little bit more about this, give you some examples from the Soviet side and kind of wrap up a little bit about what we can get from this history lesson today on this show is all about you. See you in a minute.
0: Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, Along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's a i r s c i.org or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids
1: providing aerospace for all. Welcome back everyone to this show is all about you. <laughs> talking about how this indictment isn't Nazi or Soviet. That is what we're talking about here today. And I left off talking about what Hitler was doing in early 1933 to build essentially a judiciary that was bent to his will and could operate that way. And the Gestapo certainly would target anyone who they deemed to be an enemy of the state. But that was pretty openly arbitrary, and there was no real rule of law behind it. Recognizing that, eventually the Nazis moved to at least codify what they viewed as what should be the rightful legal system and judiciary system to run their country. But not before they did some other things that were decidedly very them and we're not seeing today. In 1934, an event happened that was a quintessential example of, in the end, what Nazi notions of justice were really about. A man named Ernst Roy, who was at one point a very close confidant of Hitler and was instrumental in helping Hitler build his popularity in the 1920s and the 1930s, became a target of the very man that he had dedicated his adult life to serving. Roy was the head of the Brownshirts, the Sturmabteilung, or the so-called S.A., who were sort of the shock troopers in the Nazis' rise to power. They would fight other political groups in the streets. They would be the ones intimidating politicians, that type of thing. In 1934, after Hitler had come to power and after he had consolidated his control over the entire country, Roim said, hey, we helped you get to this point. You should be rewarding me and rewarding the SA by making them the actual army. So the idea that Roy was pitching was there should be an ideologically driven army in all of this, and you should eliminate the entire military class. Well, the military, as you would expect, didn't like that. They were Their officer corps was mainly from the rich areas of, of German society. They didn't like this at all. And Hitler's personal guard, the SS, led by one Heinrich Himmler, who would later become notorious as a war criminal overseeing the final Solution. They didn't like this either. And so in a power play that the SS ended up winning out, Hitler had Ernst Reum and all other heads of the SA murdered in an event that is known to history as the Knight of the Long Knives. Reim and others had charges trumped up against them, in particular that they were engaged in immoral activities and everybody knew what that meant back then. And so because those were rules and laws against the norms of german society as the nazis put them forward against their family values against the purity of german blood these men were all executed that was nazi justice more so than anything that they ever tried to do in a court the next year in 1935 the nazis passed the so-called nuremberg laws a whole series of laws whose entire purpose was to eliminate jews german jews from public life in Germany, as well as any other so-called undesirables that the Nazis believed in. And that meant that, for example, Germans and Jews could not intermarry. Jews were also kicked out of all civil service positions in Germany. So whether they were professors or worked for the government, uh, they were eliminated from their positions. There were so many of these laws that after the war, when the Nuremberg trials went on, which were the trials by the Allies uh, against various parts of the Nazi state, those who wrote the Nuremberg Laws were also brought on trial for crimes against the rule of law and really, in the end, human decency. So, from that point on, German judiciary systems were based on the Nuremberg Laws first and foremost. And that was passed, put together, by the Nazis themselves. There's a lot of other examples of this, but I also want to talk a little bit about the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union's system was also as anti and undemocratic as the Nazi one, in no way resembling the system that exists in the United States. The Soviet Union, coming to power when the Bolsheviks overthrew the provisional government in 1918 and established as a dictatorial totalitarian state by Lenin, Vladimir Lenin first, and then by his successor, Joseph Stalin, after him, rejected all elements of Western ways of organizing states, democracy, capitalism, the rule of law, the right to free speech, all of those they considered to be quote unquote, bourgeois capitalist mentalities that needed to be eliminated, forcibly eliminated from society so that this dictatorship of the proletariat, of the working class would emerge. And again, like in Nazism, violence was required. It wasn't just one option, it was required. And so the the legal system, as it came to exist in the Soviet Union, didn't allow for any of those things. So there were no free courts, no rule of law, no civil liberties, no personal property on the basis of ideology. And in the end, the dictatorial control of the state fell down to the Congress of the People Soviets, the Supreme Soviet, meaning The Communist Party leadership, of which first Lenin and then eventually Stalin were the undisputed heads of those. And they ruled with terror first. The state controlled everything in those systems. Politicians, party hacks, the ideologues that hewed closest to Lenin and to Stalin, they were the ones determining things, even though they had no experience in this, determining things like what the country's farmers should be creating. What should they be harvesting? How much of it should they harvest? Where should it be sold? The Soviet Union rejected the larger economic system, so open trade wasn't an option. They also oversaw things like educational curriculum. Like the Nazis, they decided what books belonged in schools and in libraries and which ones should be eliminated. And they went even a step further, even targeting the authors of said books for persecution or worse. So the Soviet Union, their system, their own secret police system, initially the Cheka, eventually the NKVD, and eventually their internal branch of the KGB, also had, like the Gestapo, independent movement allowed for everything they were doing. And even went so far as to purge their own ranks, just like Hitler did in 1934. Lenin and Stalin would purge their own ranks whenever it suited them, in the name of this larger revolution, of course, but also in supporting their own way of doing things. Lenin created the gulag system, the famous prison system that Stalin eventually expanded. It became so full of so many people and was used for so much slave labor that by the time of World War II, the gulag system was the primary driver of the Soviet economy. But that use of violence became arbitrary. And from the very beginning was, because in the Soviet Union, you could become an enemy of of the state at any time for any reason and either executed after signing a confession of treason or be sent into this gulag system for a few years all the way up to life. And in the 1920s, Stalin ordered all agriculture in the Soviet Union to be collectivized, meaning all private property seized. Everything turned into state farms that the state would oversee, again, politicians deciding on this. And then their quotas would be established a certain way, but they didn't provide everything that farmers would need to do this. And if farmers resisted, they were shot or sent to the Gulag, which eliminated the people who could grow and harvest all this stuff. And in the end, what happened was a massive famine broke out in the Soviet Union, as well as in Ukraine. And Stalin used that famine in Ukraine to destroy Ukrainian nationalism. It's the so-called terror famine that Ukrainians today still talk about in the context of the war with Russia. To cover all that up and to protect his position when this turned out to be a disaster, Stalin used the judiciary system, which meant the secret police, nobody was put on trial except for show trials, to purge the Communist Party, including people that he had known for most of his life. He had them arrested, tortured, they signed confessions, and he had them executed. About 2.5 million members of the Communist Party he had murdered in the early 1930s. And then, to make sure the military didn't get too upset about that, he did the same thing in the middle of the 1930s to the Red Army. There were 22 field marshals in the Red Army in 1934, field marshal being the highest level of military leader. It's a form of general. There were 22 of them in 1935. By 1938, there were two left he murdered the rest of them, as well as almost every officer over the rank of major. And they were all killed in show trials. The average Soviet citizen, if you were going to survive in this system, you did what you were told. You kept your head down. You didn't make jokes about Stalin's mustache. That got people thrown in jail. You didn't make jokes about anything. And that still might not protect you from the arbitrariness of this system. And if you were going before a tribunal, before a judge in the Soviet Union, your fate was already decided. And more often than not in Nazi Germany, all this going on at roughly the same time, it was the exact same thing. Predetermined and not based on evidence, based on forced confessions, gotten under duress and torture, no chance of appeal, and immediate implementation of sentence. I shouldn't have to go too much further to point out that this is not what is happening with this indictment or will be happening with this trial. And to throw this out, throw out these examples, Soviet and Nazi, as a way to demonize the other side of this, first of all, is an outright lie. Second, because of what we're actually talking about, I would argue it's immoral to make such a claim about a system that Literally murdered people by the millions, two systems, murdered them by the millions. And we're operating at all from the basic precepts of what Western liberal democracies have always put forward. The rule of law. And again, the rule of law is not itself sacrosanct and perfect. But no sober historian or citizen has ever claimed that the American judicial system is perfect or the American legal system is perfect. You don't have to label it as Nazi or Soviet to say you're not happy with it, or to say you'd like to see it change. That's why we have things like laws that go through legislative bodies that are then ruled upon by courts. And it's why people who go into criminal cases have the rights of appeal, are tried before a jury in most cases, and are presumed innocent until proven guilty. The burden of proof is on the prosecution. These systems didn't embrace that at all. And that is just fact. It's fact. And anyone who wants to use those things as parallels to today's really has to bend and stretch the truth to try and make it happen. And the fact of the matter is, for many who are on the far right of this battle and of this support for former President Trump, they're reflecting and projecting in these claims, reflecting and projecting more of what they seem to be for. Banning books in schools, targeting certain groups of people for separation from American society. Pulling together ultranationalism with a sense of their own racial superiority or racial uniqueness. That's what I mean by projecting. (laughs) When really in the end, all these things can be talked about, discussed, debated without pouring the gasoline of this type of rhetoric. This is Nazi. This is communist. Most people throwing those things out there have no idea what a Nazi or a communist even is. For many people, communism and socialism mean the same thing. They don't mean the same thing. Communism is an extreme form of socialism. And socialism encompasses a whole lot of different isms within them, including, as most European democracies are, social democracy. Democratic systems that provide a social safety net underneath them for their citizens. So not all socialists are created equal. <laughs> they just aren't. All communists are a form of socialist, yes, but the majority of socialists are not communist. It's that simple. And it's always been that way. You can tell I get <laughs> fired up by this. <laughs> I see Eric nodding a lot on the other side of the, <laughs> the other side here. So I think I'm I think I'm doing okay. But nevertheless, I thought it was important to put this out there. And it doesn't mean that we should not have concerns in our political system about either side drifting towards authoritarianism in theory. We should. But in order to have that clear sensibility of what's actually happening. We should probably know what these things are and what they mean and then spend time articulating them to people who are pushing for these positions in the name of the American people, thinking they're defending democracy, thinking they're advocating for the welfare of all Americans when really they're drifting down the path towards groups that Americans, rightfully so, back in the 1930s and 40s, considered to be their enemies. Rightfully so. I personally think we have to be able to allow room for people to come back from these positions. But the way to do it is to be talking about them. Hopefully I've contributed a little bit to that, a little bit to that today. I hope you found that useful. If you have any questions about this and anything you want me to go further into on later episodes of this show is all about you, please reach out to me at wordsbyjdk.com or find me on Instagram, Facebook, X, (laughs) I guess, Twitter, and I'd be happy to do that. Remember, you can get this episode and all other episodes of this show is all about you wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you to Hubbard Radio Seattle, which produces and distributes. This show is all about you. Eric Riders, my in-studio producer, editor, and mix master. Thanks so much, Eric. The show is made possible by the generous sponsorship of Airway Science for Kids. Check them out at airside.org. And the original theme music is by Dave Nelson of Lens Group Media. Thanks so much for this episode and all that went well for me this week it has to go to a lot of people, but I don't have time to list them this week because I'm running out of time. In particular, though, thank you, listeners. I could not do this for you without you. And to send us off into the rest of the week, let's end with this original haiku. Haiku. Know what something is before claiming it will kill everything you love. Chins up, everyone.